Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Good to see you. Glad you're here. Uh, good to be together um, in the room on the live stream. We had a little technical issue during the 9 o'clock service, so we may have some 9 o'clock people who have joined us on the live stream here at 11. We, uh, not our issue. Internet went down a couple of times, so um, apologies for that, but uh, take it up with Rogers, and uh, we'll... Uh, we'll <laughs> We'll have, the, uh, we'll have this service uploaded uh, later for on-demand viewing, and uh, grateful that uh, folks at home or wherever you happen to be are able to join us, and you're here in the room. We're going to be in Acts chapter uh, 8 on this uh, lovely, amazing Thanksgiving Sunday uh, morning. Now, if it's okay, can I talk about the pandemic for just a second? Is it okay? At 9 o'clock, someone said flat out no, but uh, I, went, I, went, <laughs> I went ahead anyway. Um, one of the saddest things, um, one of the saddest things about this pandemic is how it's gotten so many uh, Christians off message. Believers who are passionate about Christ and His church and the mission of the gospel uh, became zealots for all manner of other issues. I've beat this drum several times over the last several months. Christians became uh, pro and con, for and against. Both sides of every issue uh, were represented by uh, Christians. And, um, and, and from my perspective, the devil has done some pretty tidy work in both dividing the church in the midst of the issues that we've faced, issues that are temporal, but also in distracting us, not only polarizing us, but distracting us from the singular mission that we have, which is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And more than anything else, as we approach Acts chapter 8, the latter part of this chapter today, more than anything else, today's message is a call to get back to what Jesus told us to do, and we're going to do that by looking at an account of Philip, who we've seen already, and, and how Philip has this encounter with an unbeliever. And this is important because all around us, forget COVID, all around us, people are dying without Jesus. And so the urgency of what we've been called to as Christians, the mission that God has entrusted to us, that's, that urgency should be felt by every Christian. And as the disciples once said to Jesus, if you go back into the gospel stories, as, as, as the disciples once said to Jesus in a situation where they were struggling with the mission, Jesus had said some very hard things, and there were disciples who were bailing out. And Jesus turned to the 12, and he said, are you going to leave as well? And they said, to whom shall we go? There are no other options. The world offers us nothing. The disciples said to Jesus, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now, here's the thing. Those words of eternal life have been entrusted to us. The church of the 21st century has been entrusted with the words of eternal life. And we're to go and tell people who the Apostle Paul said, this is in Ephesians 2.12, people in this world who have no hope and are without God in the world. We have their hope, we have God, and it's been given to us to tell them. 
And so we must give ourselves to seeing unbelievers saved and baptized. That's what we're going after in this passage. We must give ourselves to see unbelievers saved and baptized. It is a matter of life and death that we do so. So let's read the passage. Let me uh, read this. This is Acts 8, 26 through to the end of the chapter. Verse 26 starts like this. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join his, this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep that was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation, for his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. All right, on, on the screen and in your notes, you're going to see unbelievers. This is the point of this uh, section of Acts 8. Unbelievers will be saved and baptized when certain things are true of me. Unbelievers will be saved and baptized when I first go anywhere and speak to anyone about Jesus. We can't look at the people that are in our lives and make a value statement or a judgment of those people and go, you know what, that person could become a Christian and that person could not. We can't judge people. We can't take those people that we come into contact with and automatically decide for ourselves something that is within the purview only of God to decide, and that is who actually could be saved. History is filled with many surprising conversions. We know of Muslims, for example, who have come to faith in Christ. We know of atheists who have come to faith in Christ. We even know, and this is the hardest group to crack, we even know of Christians who have come to faith in Christ. We know of drug addicts who have overcome their addictions and become followers of Christ. We know criminals who have come to faith in Christ. We know moralists who have come to faith in Christ. You know those people in your life are just good people. They're better than most of the Christians you know. They follow the golden rule. They're just upstanding citizens. They give their time to serve in charities and raise money, and they're just nice people. They bake muffins and bring them to your house. Even moralists have found their need of God 
And I've heard, no, I even know one. I've heard lawyers can come to faith in Jesus Christ and politicians. History is filled with many surprising conversions. We should go anywhere and speak to anyone about Jesus. Verse 26, an angel said to Philip, who is doing an amazing work of evangelism in Samaria, by the way, an angel said to Philip, an angel said to Philip, so this is how he's getting his mandate. And I think it would be good for us to pause for a second, just talk about this, because there's people who think they hear from God all the time. And if you're reading the Bible and you're hearing from God, I'm totally cool with that. But there are people who claim to have heard from God in some miraculous way like this. And I simply want to say that if you meet an angel, it's going to be unmistakable. Like you're going to know absolutely that you've met with an angel if you happen to actually meet with an angel and get a word from an angel in this way. You're absolutely going to know that it's not indigestion. You're going to know that you didn't stand up too fast and got a little dizzy. Okay, you're going to know that you actually met an angel. It's not going to be some emotional euphoria that brought this on. And if you meet with an angel, it's not going to happen a bunch of times in your life. It might happen once, maybe twice. But it's not going to happen a bunch of times. And an angel's never going to say anything that contradicts the Word of God. Amen? The inspired Word of God. That was free. That's not part of the message. I thought I'd throw that in. Did you enjoy it? So an angel, verse 26, an angel said to Philip, rise and go toward the road, the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza in the desert. Same geography today, if you look at a map, same geography. The main road uh, to Egypt and the Nile south into the deeper part of Africa, out of Israel, followed the coast. You came down in the region that to this day is called Gaza. You pass through there, following the coast along. You would come to the city of Alexandria. Uh, in the uh, Nile Delta, and then you would follow the roads, follow the Nile River all the way down into the deeper part of Africa where this man was from. That's the geography, and that's where Philip was told to go. Go down to this road that runs along the coast that connects Israel, Judea, to Egypt. And uh, so that's what he did. He went down that road, verse 27. Philip went, and there was an Ethiopian. So he sees this guy. We get to read almost his entire CV here. We learn a lot about him. He was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace. Uh, that was a Candace, by the way, was not her name. Uh, that was, that's a title like Pharaoh or Caesar. So he was an official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasures. So he's like the minister of finance in her cabinet. When it says that uh, he was an Ethiopian, it's not Ethiopian in the modern sense of that. The Ethiopians today are further south and to the east in Africa, but this is actually uh, the kingdom of Cush or the Nubians, uh, which is in northern Sudan, if you were looking at a map today, which is the country immediately south of Egypt, and you would get there by following the Nile River Valley. So it's just south of Egypt. So we know that he's a high government official from his CV here. We know that he was either, and this is not easy to talk about, we know that he was either physically castrated, which is a thing that they did back then, uh, to certain officials that were working for the government, and um, I think we could be thankful that that doesn't happen today, uh, but either physically castrated or simply uh, he was all in on public service, and let's really hope it was the latter. He was also, we find out here, a convert to Judaism. 
And we, we know from history, although it's somewhat speculative, but how would it be that someone from so far away would be converted to Judaism? But we know that 900 years prior to this, King Solomon was on the throne. The greatest extent of Israel's influence was under uh, King Solomon's rule, and people from all over the known world would travel to Jerusalem to meet with the king and to, and to glean from his incredible wisdom. And we know that uh, there were those that traveled up from this part of Africa to come and meet with, the, with King Solomon, and it's very likely that the influence of Yahweh, the message of Yahweh, the Torah, made its way down into this region uh, known as ancient Ethiopia, Numia, uh, Nubia, or uh, Cush, and that some were converts to Judaism as a result. Well, he had come to Jerusalem, this is where we see, he had come to Jerusalem to worship, that's the end of verse 27, verse 28, and he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now that's, we, we just look at it and go, oh yeah, he's got his Bible, he's just reading Isaiah, but of course there were no bound books back then, and it's very common for us, uh, Edu during the worship package as he started things, he read the Bible from his phone, and many of you are probably doing that right now. Uh, some of you are reading from bound Bibles, and we all have access to the Word of God. We have it in multiple languages and multiple translations in English, and, and, and it's readily available to everybody, but that wasn't true back then. One indication is that uh, this man was actually wealthy enough to be able to buy a, an Isaiah scroll, and so there's every evidence that he was also a wealthy man. Now, Philip may have wondered as he saw this, as he made his way down to Gaza and he's on this road to Egypt, he may have wondered why he was heading for the desert because it was not exactly a population center. He was having an active, vibrant ministry in Samaria, in towns and villages and preaching to crowds of people and seeing people get saved and baptized. Why in the world would the Spirit lead him down to the desert, to this lonely road between two countries? Yet he obeyed, and he went. And having said that, like every one of us might step back and ask the same question that Philip would have been asking on that lonely road. Why does God have me where I am? Why do I live in a certain city or neighborhood? Why do I work where I work? Why do, I, why do I have certain friends? Why was I born into the family that I was born in? Why was I born into a certain racial group? Why do I have certain limitations? We all have certain limitations. I mean, these are all things that when you think about all of what I just mentioned, when you think about that, God chose in His sovereignty for me to have all of that. My family, my race, my neighborhood, my city, my socioeconomic status, my job, all of that God chose for me. God chose that for you. And we could step back and ask the question, so God, why'd you choose that for me? Could you, God, have chosen something different for me? But if you step back and you ask the question, why does God have me where I am? The answer for every Christian needs to be exactly the same, the mission. It's the mission. God has me where he has me. God made me the person that I am because God wants me to reach the people that are in the relationships that I'm in. God's put me exactly where he wants me to work. And we know because we've just read the whole passage and we're going to come to it in a few minutes. But we know that by the end of this account, Philip gets whisked away 
just miraculously transported away at the end of that baptism. And we may think at times, you know, it would be awesome. My life, just the way it is. My family that I have to spend Thanksgiving with. I would love to be just whisked away. God, transport me to a new place. And if he does that, if you pray that and you ask him for that and he gives that to you, praise the Lord. Take a selfie. (laughs) But if he hasn't done that for you, and my suspicion is he hasn't done that for anybody here, that that means God wants you where you are. God wants you to work exactly where you are in the life situation in which he has put you. So Philip, once he got there, he's standing on the road. He's in Gaza. He's standing on the road, but he's not doing anything. And in fact, it took the Holy Spirit, even though he was there in the place where God told him to be, it took the Holy Spirit to prod him to do more. Verse 29, the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. Now, he'd watched this chariot, and we've already set up the man's CV. We know how important this guy is. Maybe he didn't go over and and speak to him because he was intimidated by him. I mean, this is the equivalent, by the way, this man, this is equivalent to you or me approaching a senior federal cabinet minister, let's say the minister of finance, the deputy prime minister, with his or her entourage of advisors, staffers, and security, running alongside the minister's limo, while her window is down and and leaning in to hear what she's reading. Now, notwithstanding the fact the RCMP wouldn't let you get that close to a federal cabinet minister, notwithstanding that, that's the picture that we have of what Philip was watching. Why maybe he didn't want to approach the chariot. He was intimidated by it. Or maybe it was a completely different reason, or maybe an additional reason. The man in the chariot is a black African. Now, I mean, no offense by that, but the gospel had only, by this time, had only been preached among the Jews in Jerusalem, and it had now only spread to the Samaritans, but let's understand that the Samaritans were half Jews. And so it all made sense that the message of the Messiah would go to those two people groups. The Samaritans represented the ancient ancient kingdom of of the north, the northern kingdom of Israel. This was like them coming back into the fold. But this was a first. This was breaking new ground. Maybe Philip wasn't quite thinking about that. This was a huge racial leap from the Samaritans that he had been preaching to. And the point is simple. God chooses who we witness to. And he's put all those people in our lives. You and I are to go anywhere and speak to anyone about Jesus. And mostly that means all of the places we already go and all of the people we already know. That's our mission field. That's where we ought to be working for the gospel. Here's a second. Make the effort. If we're willing to to go to these places and witness to anybody, then, then we need to make the effort to listen to the story of the unbeliever, to listen to their story. So verse 30, Philip, 
again, at the prompting of the Holy Spirit, ran to him. So this chariot is moving. So he ran, he ran to him and he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. And he asked, do you understand what you're reading? Literally, do you understand what you're trying to understand? Both the word understand and reading come from the same Greek root word, which is gnosis, which means to know. It's the, it's the capturing of knowledge. Do you, do you understand what you're trying to understand? Verse 31, and he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And I believe we'd say the same thing. I mean, when we see the passage that this Ethiopian was reading, it's part of Isaiah's prophecies. It's predictive of the future. It's not exactly easy to lock down. Just think of the last time you read the book of Revelation and kind of went, I have no idea what that means. You read Revelation? Is that kind of the feeling you have when you read Revelation? That's the feeling everybody has when they read Revelation, so don't be ashamed. Everybody feels that way. Uh, we, we all look at it and go, I have no idea, but it's pretty awesome. Okay, that's how we should look at that book. And so that's how this Ethiopians feel. He just, he's read this prophecy that's predictive of the future. He doesn't quite know what he's read. Verse 32, he was reading, actually, if you're taking notes, Isaiah 53, 7 and 8, and he was reading it from the Greek version of the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. So this Ethiopian speaks Greek because the, the language of currency, the main language of the Mediterranean world at this time was Greek. That was the result of Alexander the Great conquering uh, that whole part of the world and his influence spreading. So everybody was speaking Greek. That certainly set up the preaching of the gospel in history because it meant that the gospel could be written, the New Testament could be written in Greek and people be able to read it. And so this man's reading a, a, a Greek version of the Old Testament, also convenient because Philip was a, we, we learned earlier in Acts, was a Greek-speaking Jew. And so you have a Greek-speaking Jew, you have a Greek-speaking Ethiopian, he's reading a Greek version of the Old Testament. And as he's reading this, this is what he reads, like a sheep. By the way, when we read this, we just hear Jesus, right? We read this prophecy that was given 600 years before Jesus. And all we read is Jesus. Like that's all we, that's all we can hear. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. This is the suffering servant. This is part of a section of Isaiah that are the servant songs at the end of Isaiah's prophecy, the servant songs that point it to a suffering Messiah. And so we know this is Jesus, the suffering servant. It's a picture of his crucifixion. It's a picture of Jesus' willing sacrifice of himself on the cross. Verse 33, in his humiliation, justice was denied him. The humiliation was the crucifixion, but it was also the fact that Jesus was sinless, falsely accused. He was perfectly holy, never gave in to temptation, and he was humiliated by the condemnation that put him on the cross. Text goes on, verse 33, to say, who can describe his generation? There's, there's no descendants from Jesus. His life was cut off short, for his life was, is taken away. He died on the cross but then we know he was raised to life and ascended to the Father away from the earth. He was taken away in death, and then he was taken away in the ascension. Now, when I read that and explain that, you go, yeah, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. I totally get it. But for this, this Ethiopian man, that's some pretty heady stuff. 
And to this day, in fact, if you would read Jewish commentaries on this passage of Scripture, there's still much confusion about what this refers to. And as we look at it, we can say, yes, you know what? When we read the servant songs in Isaiah, they seem to apply to the nation of Israel as a whole. Then we see that they are ultimately and perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and they are also applicable to the church today and to individual Christians who are supposed to be embodying and playing out, living out everything that Jesus did. And so we understand it, we get it, because it's been explained and taught to us. But it was difficult for this Ethiopian. He was grasping to understand what it is. And then having read it, verse 34, you can tell that this Ethiopian, he's asking good questions, like deep questions. He's thinking about this. He said, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this? Is this about himself or is it about someone else? And again, that's a great question. He's interrogating the text of God's Word. And it's so obvious that he was thinking deeply about these things, and he understood the challenge of interpreting this particular passage. The fact that he asked the question, the fact that he invited Philip to come up, showed that he was a searcher for truth. And really, it's the kind of question, the kind of opening that you're looking for in these relationships that God has given to you. This is what you want to hear when you're looking for an opportunity to talk to somebody about Jesus. You want the in. You want the question. You want the inquiry. You want some kind of a discussion starter that's going to get you to the place where you can share the gospel. You're looking for interest and common ground. Philip had it in this man. But he's willing to listen. He was willing to hear what he was reading and to discern what was going on in his life. And if we don't listen to what unbelievers in our lives are saying, we won't hear their heart. And we won't know where the opening is to actually share the gospel with them. There's several things that I, that I believe to be true about I, I could just say this about every unbeliever in our lives. I believe these things at a baseline are true. They may use different words to describe this, but I believe these things are true. I believe that everyone's searching for God. It may be, not be the God that, that we worship. It may not be the God of the universe, but they're searching for a God. They're searching for something that helps them to understand everything that's happened in history and in the world. Secondly, I would just say people want to have faith in something outside of themselves. They want to actually entrust themselves to something, to believe in something. Thirdly, it's very true that people are exhausted by life. Every person around you is beaten down and exhausted by life. And that alone is a wonderful starting point. And fourth... People are looking for a hope that's real. People go after all kinds of things to, to pursue hope, some of them negative, some of them positive, hopeful things, but ultimately not providing eternal hope, the eternal hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And see, we have all of this. We, we know the end to the search for God. We know what the object of our faith is 
we know what the remedy for exhaustion and weariness is. We know where the genuine hope is. We have the words of eternal life. And we ought to be looking for every opportunity to share it by listening to what people are saying, listening to their stories. <clears throat> and if you've come this far, if you've done that, the time will come when you get to share the gospel and then trust God to work. You see that in the notes, share the gospel and trust God to work. Verse 35, Philip opened his mouth and he began with that scripture. He, he began with Isaiah 53 and he probably took them took the man through the rest of Isaiah 53 and then went to other passages, beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And um, evidently along the way, as Philip was explaining these things, verse 36, he believed. At some point along the way, he, he professed faith in Christ because he says in verse 36, as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? I mean, that's him saying, okay, Philip, I get it. I understand it. I believe it. I'm in. Now let's do the rite of initiation so that the people in my entourage and anyone else that's passing by and you yourself can see that I'm actually in. Now think about it. If, if a just in terms, again, of who can hear this message and how God works. This is not just a miracle of, of conversion, but this is something very special that's happening. This is a moment in church history. Because this was a eunuch. And if we say he was truly a eunuch in that physical sense of what that means. That meant that when he went to worship Yahweh in Jerusalem, that he wasn't even allowed to enter the temple. But the gospel was breaking that down for him. He could overcome that obstacle. He was a Gentile. He was a non-Jew, although in this case, he was a proselyte of Judaism or a convert of Judaism. And as I've already mentioned, he was a black African. This would be the first convert among black Africans, the first convert outside of Israel itself. And the gospel would be taken to his people in Nubia and no doubt spread even further into that continent. And the point is, all barriers to all people had been removed, and the gospel was truly available to all nations. The promise that had been given to Abraham 2,000 years prior to Christ, the promise that all nations would be blessed through Abraham, was coming to pass through the Messiah, all nations truly being blessed with the gospel. And that's God working. And our job is to share the gospel. God's job is to save. And we need to trust Him with that part of it. But we need to do our part. We need to be equipped to do our part, in fact. And there are many ways that if you're in this situation where you go, like, I think I have someone in my life that I should be sharing the gospel with, that many ways that we could actually explain the gospel. 
We've talked about some of these over the years. Some of you will know uh, these already. All of these can be searched on the internet, but the ABC method is simply accept, believe, confess, largely based on Romans 10, 9, and 10. Accept, believe, confess Jesus Christ. The Romans road takes us through uh, five verses in the book of Romans, 323, 623, 5.8, 10.9, and 10.13. Again, if you search Romans road in Google, you'll find the Romans road, you'll find the verses, and you'll see how you can explain the gospel working through these five verses from the book of Romans. The bridge illustration, which my oldest son, uh, he came to faith as a little boy on a Sunday morning when the bridge illustration was drawn onto, believe it or not, an overhead projector slide, you know, just drawn out. And, and he came to faith in Christ. And that night, he witnessed to his first person using the bridge illustration at seven years of age. The Gospel of John, just often published by itself, but giving the Gospel of John to someone, there's something particularly anointed about the Gospel of John, so many little encounters where Jesus is having one-on-one -on -one conversations with people about how they can come to faith in Him, and God has used that Gospel in such incredible ways. And then I would just say your own story. What's your testimony? How'd you come to Jesus? And sharing how uh, your sins have been forgiven Sharing that story with others can often stir up the gospel, stir up salvation in them. And what you share is going to depend on who you're talking to and where they're coming from, what the context is. We explain on our website the five gospel words. You can go there. It's at the bottom of every page. It's at hbc.info as well. But the five gospel words, God, sin, substitution, believe, and life. We start with the word God. There is a God. He created huma humanity and, and built into this, this, this sense of the divine, the divine spark that we have inside of us, so that as humans, we want to exercise faith in something outside of ourselves. We've talked about that already. And though God created us perfect in the beginning, the second word is sin entered in and ruined everything. Everything is impacted and affected by sin. It's why there's evil in the world. It's why there's sorrow. It's why you're experiencing pain. And it's why we experience death. It's the result of sin. And all people have sinned. And everyone is under the condemnation of death as a result of our sin. And it's not just physical death, but it's spiritual or second death or eternal separation from God that we're facing. But there is hope because God loved us so much that He sent His Son. He provided a way for us to be saved. Jesus came and died. Here's the, uh, the, the third word. He came and died as our substitution, exchanging His perfect, holy, sinless life for our sinful one. And having died, been buried, and raised to new life on the third day, we can be saved if only by faith alone we would believe, that we would believe in the Son of God's sacrifice for us. And if we do believe, we'll have life, abundant now, grace, mercy, peace, hope, faith, all these things poured into our lives. And then the promise of eternal life with God forever. It's as simple as that. And anyone here, any Christian here can learn those five words. If you have trouble with them, just tattoo them on your forearm. Just have it ready. I'm serious. You could do that. 
just, just leave us. Walk through the five words. Explain the gospel. You can put it on a card or on your phone too. It would be less cool. But anyone can learn this and be prepared to share the gospel. This is part of our mandate as a church. It's one of our four pillars, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with boldness. And the thing we lack is not training, it's not knowledge, it's not opportunity. What we lack is boldness to actually just do it with the people who are naturally and already in our lives. Now, verse 38, the man commanded the chariot to stop. He said, what's preventing me from being baptized? I believe. He commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he immersed him. Baptism being the public declaration of faith in Jesus Christ and also our identification with his death, burial, and resurrection. Baptism being a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then having gotten this done, when they came up out of the water, verse 39... The Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. And so share the gospel, trust God to work, and the natural outcome of salvation is going to be joy for the one being saved, but also joy for the one that God is using to bring people to salvation. It's going to be awesome to have that joy when we see people coming to faith in Christ and being baptized. And then finally this, when we've locked all of that down, unbelievers are going to be saved and baptized when I do it again and again and again. Just keep doing it. When I relentlessly and diligently look for opportunities and I seize them, I seize those opportunities to tell people about Jesus. So we kind of like passed over what happened in verse 39, but this is kind of like if you're into science fiction, this is kind of like a Star Trek moment here, right? He baptizes them and then he just gets beamed up. And then he gets beamed right back down again. And verse 40 says, Philip found himself at Azotus. And again, that's kind of funny because the Spirit had simply whisked him away. Imagine being Philip and you're you're baptizing a guy and then he comes up out of the water and you're just going in for the hug and then you find yourself, oh, I'm in Azotus. And I wonder too, because I think about these things, was he still wet when he got there? Like was he, because he had gone down into the water. Now, he got transported about the same distance from Gaza to Azotus, about the same distance between Barry and, and, and Aurelia. So it's, it's a pretty crazy miracle that happens here. But Luke recounts it in just a very matter-of-fact way here in Acts. He just dematerialized, and then he rematerialized in a new place, and, and that was the end of it. It was just God doing the work that God does. And when he got there, he sees the welcome to Azotus sign, and then he goes, okay, well, I'm going to preach in this town. And then he was making his way all the way up the coast. He preached the gospel to all the coastal towns as he headed north until he came to Caesarea. Now, Philip had been ministering in Jerusalem. He had gone to Samaria. He was preaching the gospel there, saw results of that, went down to Gaza. So he's kind of a traveling evangelist a little bit, but there's every indication now that he kind of stayed and settled in Caesarea and worked in the church there, because when we come to, if you're taking notes, uh, Acts 21, verses 8 and 9, 21, 8 and 9, um, he was in Caesarea, and the Apostle Paul, this is many, many years later, but the Apostle Paul arrives at the port in Caesarea, and he seeks out Philip, who by this time 
uh, had four daughters, and, and chapter 21 tells us he had four unmarried, unmarried daughters who prophesied. And so Philip went to Caesarea, he stayed there, he was part of the church, he passed on his zeal for witnessing and his mission to his daughters. Uh, the mission by Philip was being done again and again and again, and it is to be passed along from generation to generation, which is exactly what's been happening for 2,000 years. The mission has been passed on from generation to generation, but not perfectly, because there's a warning baked into this. When we think about the gospel mission being handed down from generation to generation, there's a warning here because individual Christians didn't necessarily get it. And the line sometimes ends, and a new line has to be established that will pass on the mission, because there are Christians who lose their zeal. They lose their zeal for the mission. They lose their zeal for the gospel, and they fail to pass along their faith to the next generation. And God moves on. He finds new people to pass it on to. There are churches steeped in tradition and so proud of their history as a church that fail to prioritize, prioritize the gospel, the making of disciples and the planting of churches. And those churches become irrelevant, quenching the fire of the Holy Spirit. And there are thousands and thousands and thousands upon thousands of churches throughout history that have just wasted away into nothing because they failed to carry on the mission. And when we think about that, we have to remember that this isn't just about a technique. This isn't like an evangelistic strategy that I've handed to you, even though I've encouraged you, learn a way to share the gospel, listen to people, uh, where, for, you know, describe where they're at. For sure, there are some strategies baked into it, but this is not about strategy. This is about the power of God in us. We can't miss the underlying power that is behind everything in the book of Acts. Because before his ascension, Jesus said this, and I feel like in every message I'm taking you back to Acts 1.8 because it sets the tone for the whole book. But in Acts 1.8, before Jesus says, you will be my witnesses, this is what he says. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and, if I can add a word, then, and then you will be my witnesses. You can't be the witnesses of Jesus Christ until you have the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Because that's the only way we're going to see any results. We need to remember that the power behind what we do in being witnesses for Christ is all Holy Spirit. It's not us. It's not technique. It's not strategies. It's the Holy Spirit. I mean, after all, in this passage, it was the Spirit who, through the angel, told Philip to go south to Gaza. It was the Spirit who led him to talk to the Ethiopian. It was the Spirit who carried him away again. And if we fill in the blanks in between, it was the Spirit who gave him the boldness to approach the chariot in the first, first place. It was the, it was the Spirit who gave him the words to say to respond to the Isaiah passage. And it was the Spirit who gave the joy of baptizing him when he believed so start to finish, this is the Spirit's work in and through Philip. And as we get into chapters 9 and 10, it only ramps up. 
And we'll see even more of the Spirit's power. So listen, when we give ourselves to this mission, God will work similarly through us. The Spirit will work through us to save unbelievers. When we commit to being witnesses, not in name only, but in practice, really committing, committing to witness for Christ, the Spirit will fill us and empower us, and we will see, I'm meaning this as a declarative statement, we will see unbelievers saved and baptized. We will. We'll see children and harvest kids give their lives to Christ. And on Wednesday nights at Awana, we'll see young people come to faith in Christ on Tuesday nights at Harvest Youth and in all levels of our adult ministry, from young adults to seniors. We'll see people come to faith in Christ. We'll see people come to faith in Christ on the live stream. People who have never set foot in this building, people who are maybe hundreds of miles away from here, but who are going to hear the gospel and trust Christ and give their lives to Him. God will work in all of these ways and more, helping the unsaved to find life in Him. And we should believe, we should believe it will happen we should expect it to happen. We should pray for it to happen. Unbelievers will be saved and baptized. Amen? Do you believe it? Unbelievers will be saved and baptized. Now, as we think about this, we're just going to bring this in for a landing, but as we think about this, and before the worship team comes and leads us again in a song, I want you to have in your mind right now the name the face, just in your mind, the name and the face of someone that you know who doesn't know Jesus. Just have that name and that face ready. I'm going to pray, and in the course of my prayer, I'm just going to stop, and I'm going to leave a blank for you to say the name to the Lord. You don't need to say it audibly, but just you pray, you take over, and all of us are going to be praying in that moment for the name or the names, the face or the faces that we're thinking of of people who need Jesus right now, people that we know, people that we interact with. And when we pray that, hundreds of prayers are going to go up before the Lord. Hundreds of names are going to go up before the Lord, perhaps thousands of names over two services and with all of those who are on the live stream and watching on demand this week. All these names are going to be lifted before the Lord, and the Lord's going to hear all of them as we plead with Him to save them. Let's pray believing that they will be saved and baptized. Let's go to prayer right now. Father, I am a grateful, first of all, that Philip was so faithful to you and so committed to the gospel mission that he left a very prosperous and successful mission in Samaria to obey your calling to go to Gaza, to have that conversation. And Father, there's no telling what happened after that as the Ethiopian took the gospel further into Africa for the first time. So Father, we're grateful for that and for how that stirs in our heart to do the same. And we're grateful for the gospel. We're grateful for the good news of Jesus Christ that saves 
and continues to sanctify us throughout our lives. And God, all of us have people in our lives who don't yet know Jesus. And we believe, as you saved us, that you will save the lost. We believe that you will forgive sinners. We believe that you will give life to those who are under the condemnation of death. We believe that you'll give hope to the despairing. And so right now, God, we pray for these friends and loved ones, these neighbors and family members. We pray for them right now, God, by name. Father, you've heard every name. It's a miracle that's hard for us even to comprehend. And God, we know your heart. You desire all to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So God, we pray earnestly that you would save these names, save these people that we've mentioned to you. Do an incredible work call them to faith in Jesus Christ and to find the forgiveness of their sins. Do incredible things that will surprise us as we see you work. God, we trust you to work. Give us courage. Give us the boldness we need to share the good news of Jesus Christ, not to shrink back, not to be fearful, where we need to learn some things, Father, and train ourselves to be able to do this. God, I pray that we would take that up and be learning it this week. And help us all, Father, to be faithful witnesses for Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Could I encourage you to do one more thing this week? Take those names that you just thought of. Just get your phone open to the notes and put that list of names there. And then when you have idle moments, when you're waiting for something to happen, instead of looking at social media or doing, playing a game or whatever else you're doing, just go to that list and pray those, pray those names before the Lord again and ask God to save. And we're going to worship right now and let the team lead us and get our eyes vertical on the God who saves. So let's do that uh, together. Let's stand together and worship.